subscribe to Simply Bitcoin. All right. Welcome, everybody. Welcome in. It's another episode of the Meme Factory Podcast. This is stream test number 36. This evening, we have Nick Bhatia with us. Nick is the celebrated author of Layered Money, uh, a book that I truly enjoyed. Uh, I got to reading it finally. It was one of the, uh, definitely one of the books I recommend early on in your Bitcoin journey. Uh, but it's, it's a book that I didn't get to till I was uh, playing around with Lightning. And it really helped me understand what the, what the functions of different layers of money are. And <laughs> that's a really important concept to, uh, to understand when you were playing around with Bitcoin and trying to understand what value Bitcoin brings to the table, where, uh, where and how it should function versus other monies and what kind of problems other potential monies might have in trying to go after the same market that Bitcoin is going after. And, I mean, there's no question in there, Nick. I'm just pontificating. Uh, if you want to introduce yourself, you can go right ahead, man. Thanks for having me, guys. Uh, my name is Nick Batia, author of Layered Money and uh, adjunct professor at USC Marshall School of Business. Fight on, go Trojans. All right, well, Nick, I know this is uh, it's your first time on the show. Uh, hopefully after this, uh, this hour, we'll get you on again at some time. But in the meantime, since it is your first time, I got to let you know, uh, this show is a little bit different. Uh, the way we are able to secure ad revenue is by sourcing um, a little bit differently. The people that pay us for ads also supplies with ad copy that they then demand we have our guests read for them on air. This week, similar to uh, when we had Safe on, you were actually the uh, the ad sponsor. So when you get a chance, you can go ahead and read that ad copy and uh, have at it. Absolutely. Good evening, everyone. My name is Nick, and this episode of the Mean Factory podcast is brought to you by my new endeavor, YouTube Makeup Tutorials. I'm calling it Arithmetic Thick Chick Lipstick by Nick. It has come to my attention that there are plenty of women in Bitcoin who want to put their best foot forward, but don't have the skills to properly layer their makeup. So I'm here to help. Have you ever applied blush before applying a good base layer? Does your glitter not shine through your lipstick the way it should? Want to be a mermaid, but your look washes off in the water? My new YouTube channel, Arithmetic Thick Chick Lipstick by Nick, doesn't just roll off the tongue with the ease of tear-sodden mascara. It teaches you how to build, layer upon layer, the best face you could possibly put forward. In my first video tutorial, you'll learn how to take your time to apply the most solid foundation, how to apply a second layer, lightning fast, the best temperature to store your war paints under, my team and I are hard at work putting the final touches on our video series, which will have timeless value and lead to people looking at you and saying, wow, that's, that's just a lot of layers of makeup. Or, are you all right? So believe me when I tell you, smash that like button, subscribe to Arithmetic Thick Chick Lipstick by Nick, and get ready to get noticed on Terra all the way from Luna. Use our subscriber code Layered face paint for exclusive content. Yeah. 
Thank you. You can get paid now. Now he can get paid. I love it. Rolls right off the tongue. It rolls right off the tongue. It really, it really does. All right, so Nick, uh, you caught my attention recently. You put out a post uh, saying there's a red candle out there, darker than anything else we've seen before. Um, took people a lot of guesses, and they finally guessed it, but I don't want to ruin it for anybody who's, uh, who's just watching now. Can you tell me what it is you're thinking about? Yes, yeah, so I'm big into charts, and um, you know, sometimes I know that goes without saying, but I think for a lot of people out there, are very skeptical of charts, technical analysis, and what it means. But my background is in behavioral finance, and I'm a firm believer in behavior having a huge effect on markets. And so when I look at charts, I'm trying to interpret the behavior of the market. And the red candle I'm looking at right now is Ethereum versus Bitcoin. And what is happening right now is that we're having a breakdown, a red candle, a weekly decline in that ratio. And it's quite a large decline in the ratio of Ethereum versus Bitcoin. But <clears throat> from a behavior standpoint, what it means to me is that we have a loss of confidence in the entire non-Bitcoin space at the same time as the whole space coming down in market value. So you have risk off moves in stocks, Bitcoin, and all of cryptocurrency, but then specifically an enormous risk off move in non-Bitcoin versus Bitcoin. And the one price I'm looking at for the most signal is an ETH BTC cross. Now, it's not the first time we've seen uh, all season blow out in in a red shorting it with like 100 leverage now <laughs> so i mean i i was an eth head the last time it crashed i remember those big red candles what's what's making it different this time from last time why why should we expect anything other than a large decline and then it following bitcoin right back up uh yeah during the next cycle yeah so um you know, just pulling up the chart right here because I want to, you know, have the uh, the dates all for you in, in my thesis here. Feel free to share your screen if you've got some interesting graphics. Oh, um, I'm I'm not going to share the chart right now, but uh, I got too many I got too many things up here. But I I do want to. Um, I'll 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 you know I'll use I'll use specific Lavra, dates Lavra here because. Render it. Um. So in June. 2017, this pair got up to spot 15, okay? So 15% in of a Bitcoin per ETH. Yes, in, the, in, in, in price terms, right? It's not a market cap ratio. This is a price ratio. So, and then in 2018, January, it got up to spot 12. So a lower high there. Then... In the pandemic pump, it finally got up to spot eight, and then and then just just below nine. And so what? And then right now it it was trying to get up, you know, um, back to eight, and it's now below seven. So 
and it spent 2019, 2020 in this, you know, two to four range. So in, 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 in this death zone, really, um, but recovered quite strongly since then. So why is it significant to me? Because the lower highs from 2017 to 2018 to 2021 and now 2022 are not signaling that we are going to have this duality of Bitcoin and Ethereum. It's signaling the opposite. And if, and it can change really quickly. Like if we get back to spot 09, let's say on this ratio, uh, the red candle that we're seeing right now it becomes irrelevant and you're uh, telling a new story. So I'm I'm very quick to change the narrative based off what the price is telling me. Price is truth is my favorite saying, and I believe in that. So when the price of Ethereum on a market value basis uh, reached almost half a trillion dollars, or I think it maybe even went higher than that, <clears throat> It's telling you that this thing will be around. It's 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 not going to die. It's here. It's probably here to stay. And um, but then when it crashes down the way it has, and then it starts breaking down in Bitcoin price, then you put it on watch for okay, this could actually be going to zero. But the price will invalidate or validate that thesis for me. I I'm not here to really predict what Ethereum's going to do, nor do I even really know that, that much about Ethereum. I focus all of my research on Bitcoin. There's plenty to do there. Lightning Network as well. And I'm uh, honestly a global macroeconomic focused researcher. So Ethereum really falls into the category of a tech company, which I'm not looking at what Apple is up to, what Google is up to, and honestly, what Ethereum is, is doing. It's not part of my uh, you know, research spectrum. Yeah, I was kind of thinking those same things because Ethereum is Ethereum Foundation. And so if you look at uh, something like ETH, right, it's hit its all-time high versus Bitcoin in 2015, like what you're saying. And I just kind of think, imagine if Bitcoin would have hit its all-time high in dollars in 2015 and then tried to tried to get the highest high in 2017, but couldn't get there and then dropped and then tried it again in 2022, couldn't get there and then dropped even lower. I think people would lose a lot of faith in because the part of Bitcoin is the number go up technology. And so as you look at what Ethereum is, is it's just another almost like it's an unregistered security that's going to zero against Bitcoin. And yeah, maybe it might have some nominal value in dollar terms, just like stocks do. Uh, but in the long run, all these things are going to, to zero or close to zero in Bitcoin terms. Yeah, and let and I, when I think about my own valuation framework for Bitcoin or my long thesis for Bitcoin, when I you know talk to uh, buy side offices, people that are allocating funds, and I'm advocating a long Bitcoin position over a long term time horizon, that's the basic thesis. It's not a it's not a trading you know uh, idea. It's not um, a crypto allocation. <clears throat> it's a recommendation to buy Bitcoin over a long term time horizon to capitalize on this adoption and this new monetary technology. So when I look at Bitcoin and I look at halvings and I look at the cycle of Bitcoin highs and lows, 
it is very easy to point out three or four, depending on you know how long you're looking at, three or four consecutive uh, increases in the low of Bitcoin each halving cycle, right? Um, you know, after the 2013 bubble got down to the about $200 range. Higher lows, basically. Right, right higher lows. And, you know, two, 200 was that low, then 3,000 was the last cycle low. This cycle low is going to be somewhere in the 20,000 handle, let's say, you know, whether it's 15,000 or 20, you know, 27,000, 25,000. It's going to be a lot higher than 3,000, which was the last one. So higher lows are very important uh, to build a long thesis on top of because trends persist and trends are to be, you know, uh, invested in. And so what is the trend of Ethereum versus Bitcoin? It's lower. And each time a candle, whatever, a weekly or a monthly candle confirms the trend, it warrants your attention. And again, I'll be the first to say, that thesis was wrong if we break, you know, the chart turns around and it starts going up again versus Bitcoin. Because honestly, the dollar price of Ethereum doesn't matter when we're thinking about what, when I'm thinking about digital assets and, uh, you know, teaching these concepts. And would you venture guess at whether it would be a good thing or a bad thing? if uh, Ethereum ever manages to move to a proof of stake system with regards to their price? Uh, you know, I, I don't, I don't know. I don't have, I don't have much comment on that. I, what I do know is that proof of work is part of the fundamental valuation of Bitcoin. And it actually allows, um, it allows analysts that maybe are more focused on frameworks, valuation frameworks across cryptocurrency, it, it would allow more of an apples to apples comparison of Bitcoin to Ethereum. And if that stopped, that wouldn't necessarily be favorable for Ethereum, in my opinion, because proof of work is part of that fundamental valuation of, of Bitcoin. So, you know, that's as far as I would go there. But uh, I, I'm, I don't know much about proof of stake because it's not part of Bitcoin. And so it hasn't entered my, uh, you know, research framework. Uh, it's not something that I can pin any valuation on because it doesn't exist in the one thing that I'm researching. It also sucks. <laughs> and that's I, I believe you. A lot. It sucks a lot. Yeah. I mean, we, live, well, we, live, we live in a proof of stake system already. <laughs> and, 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 and that's the thing is that when, when people, uh, give metaphors for proof of stake um, about basically, you know, being a voting system and the people with the most money have the most control, like politics or or anything like that. Um, it does it does uh, reek of basically um, the status quo. And Bitcoin is something quite different. And the proof of getting back to proof of work, the proof of work is what brings equity and fairness to this process of Bitcoin. And that is also part of its fundamental valuation. And, uh, you know, I, sum I summarize it in one word, neutral. Um, I think proof of work is a core contributor to the idea of Bitcoin being a neutral currency. 
mean, it's basically all that it has. When you say it reeks of the status quo, are you, are you telling me you can smell Labrador from there? Or is that just, <laughs> just a phrase that you like to use? We, we, we bathed him this week. It was, it was, rough. oh, well, I'm thankful for oh, that. What do because... you mean, we? Uh, yeah. <laughs> the royal we? Was it, was it just me in there? Well, uh, okay, so a while back, you, you wrote an article saying that, uh, that Bitcoin and crypto, you know, Bitcoin's one thing, crypto's its whole other thing. And then obviously you wrote the book called uh, Layered Money, which you went into great detail, basically, you know, detailing the history of how money became money from, from, uh, from Holland, how that started, and then breaking it down into uh, bonds are basically the base layer of money today, bonds and gold. And I think that's when I look at Bitcoin, that's always been at least once I really got orange pilled, right? At the beginning, you're looking at all these altcoins and everything. But then once I got orange pilled, it just really clicked with me that Bitcoin is competing against central banks, uh, gold and bonds for that base layer of money, while crypto is doing its whole other thing on the side. Um, what what kind of, you know, as you're you know, an adjunct professor at USC, what made that click for you? Or what gives you that, the idea that Bitcoin really can compete with, with US treasuries and, you know, and with gold? It's, for me, it was the desire for the asset as a source of liquidity and a source of escaping counterparty risk. I think that was in the ethos early of Bitcoin and the emphasis on self custody and, you know, using Bitcoin myself for the first time, that's a powerful moment. Like when you understand that, you know, there's this address and this key and you use and you watch it on the chain, that whole experience is extremely religious and um, it, the power that you get from that is more than the power than you get from holding a gold coin, even after understanding the history of money. And that's a process that I went through, right? I learned about money, the history of money, gold, counterparty risk, and um, and all of that before discovering Bitcoin, before you know ever reading the first thing about Bitcoin, and then to actually go long gold in my personal portfolio because of my thesis around money, fiat money, and then to hold gold in your hand and the power that you felt that I felt at that moment, pre-Bitcoin, you, you know, you just, you can magnify and multiply that feeling, that emotion that comes with using the Bitcoin software, receiving, sending and receiving a transaction to yourself, which is, you know, the first time that I used Bitcoin. Um, you know, you buy it some, you know, in place A and send it to yourself in place B and, you know, $5 worth. And you're just like, oh, my God, this is this is so powerful. Um, I, I you can't really unsee it. And then I got this heavy dose of altcoin skepticism when I was first diving down the Bitcoin rabbit hole. Just, you know, uh, good, uh, I guess discernment on my side in terms of who I was following on Twitter at the time. This is 2016. And uh, there was a lot of skepticism about the launch of Ethereum. 
and then the Dow hack happened. And so that was my fa- that was within month months of me learning about Bitcoin, diving down the Bitcoin rabbit hole. Or you have Ethereum, it's hacked, and then they roll back the chain because a group of people in a room said we want to do undo on that. And I'm like, this is dead. This is dead to me. So to answer your question, Sean, it was the Dow hack 2016 when I was like, oh, this obviously not the same thing. There's a room of people that decided to click undo. And and that was uh, so blatant. When I'm coming from the gold school and looking for sound money, and then I see a boardroom decision, I'm like, that's that's a tech company. That's not the same thing at all. And well, why do you yeah. think that, you know, when you saw that happen, right? We, we all saw that happen, or at least if you weren't around, you could look back and see those things. And you could see, you know, when Vitalik goes, guys, stop trading or whatever he says. Labrador loves that quote. Because yeah. it just shows how that was Can you guys event, please stop yeah. trading? Yeah. Guys, stop trading. Yeah, it's just the dumbest thing. It's like, okay, we have central bankers like Jerome Powell, and now you create your own money, and then you create your own central bankers. Uh, So it just, you know, why do you think people think that these other things are decentralized, you know, or or what what even is decentralization to you, or, you know, in, in that sense? There's plenty of value in centralized things. That's what the market is telling us. It always has told us that. And so there's a market for it and they want to do something their way. They, you know, I'm not saying that Ethereum will make money off of it, but let's say, you know, some tech company, they're trying something new. They're going to make money off of it. It's a centralized solution, um, but people are okay with it. Their people are okay with KYC. They're okay with giving their, sharing their data. You know, social networks are an example of this. It's all centralized, but there's demand from the market. And that's just the nature of the world. Well, guess what? There's also demand for gold and Bitcoin, which means that there's a natural demand for neutral assets as well. Now, we're in an era where the distinction is as, as clear as ever. And we're in an internet era where basically this is an unprecedented optionality for the, the populace which way do we go and also for smaller nations and uh companies as well this is a first in which they can decide do we want neutral money do we want centralized money do we want to mix and uh because for many years the neutral money option would be gold and it's a ridiculous asset to use in business just it doesn't make any sense to have gold coins in any part of your business unless you're a gold business, right? But Bitcoin doesn't fit that bill. Bitcoin can be used as international uh, payment rail. It can be used as inflation hedge or it can be used as your preferred currency if you're not in a country with a good, uh, you know, currency stability. And, you know, we like to make fun of the, the death of the dollar over a 200 year time horizon, but the dollar is incredibly stable versus Bitcoin, even when factoring in inflation. So Bitcoin is most applicable from that standpoint outside of the United States. And inside of the United States, as a long-term hedge against the Federal Reserve, it's working just fine. 
but it's not it's not a great inflation hedge explicitly in the United States. Bitcoin is crashing as inflation is at a 40 year high. So those two things don't really jive with me in in a price of truth sort of way when we have inflation going up and up and up and then we have a deep bear market in Bitcoin. Um, it it's not the best way to describe Bitcoin. And, and why do you think that's happening, even though we see that as obvious? Yeah, uh, so there are two cycles in effect with Bitcoin. There's Bitcoin's natural cycle when it comes to halvings. We know that that has an effect on the price and Bitcoin has a cyclicality there. Uh, it's changing, but there's there's a hint of cyclicality that we we have to you know appreciate and understand. And then we have the business cycle and the business cycle drives investment returns. I know we like to think of Bitcoin as separate, but the correlation speaks for itself this year. It's, you know, basically one. So Bitcoin is just trading along with the rest of risk. And why is the rest of risk trading off? Because we are in a late phase, early recession, um, declining PMI, declining ISM environment in which the Fed is tightening on higher inflation, Can we back it up? the what? higher interest rates. I don't know Sorry. what ISM is. Okay. Uh, do you know what PMI is? So PMI, it stands for the Purchasing Managers Index. And it's basically a survey, a business survey that goes out around the world. It is a, it's a set of questions and it, they ask purchasing managers. So these are people in basically the C-level of you know, small, medium, and big companies, and they ask them the following questions. Uh, were, the, were the new orders that your company received higher than last month, the same as last month, or less than last month? Were the prices that you paid for things higher, the same, or lower? Were the number of people that you hired higher, the same, or lower than last month? Were you know your inventories higher, the same, or lower than last month? So that's all it is. It's a set of questions that go out around the world. And if the people answer yes, the numbers are above 50. If they answer the same, they're 50. And if they're no, they're lower than 50. And in that way, we get a real-time track of GDP. So it's been proven basically empirically that PMIs track GDP real-time. So basically most economists and let's say rate strategists on the street, people that I dealt with, my, you know, myself included, we don't use GDP anymore. GDP is lagging. It's three to six months lagging in terms of the data that we get. And empirically, we have seen that PMI data mirrors GDP, like right on top of it. So PMIs, when I say PMI, I'm talking about real-time GDP. And when I use the 50 level, I'm basically saying above 50 means expansion, below 50 means contraction. So that's the answer to what PMIs is. ISM is the USA equivalent of this manager's survey data. And it has the longest time series, meaning that we have the ISM survey has been around for decades. So it's the ISM is the best way that we can judge in a real on a real time basis. Where is the United States economy today? Contraction, expansion, slowing, growing, you know, accelerating, decelerating, all of that. It's GDP. 
So I don't use GDP, I use ISM and I use PMI. So that's, I hope that answers your question, Greg. So Nick, if you if you were to start like a long-term uh, longitudinal survey amongst uh, Bitcoiners and Bitcoin investors, what were like, what would like the top three questions be that you'd ask in that survey? Um, see, you know, Bitcoin is, it's not a business. And so the price expresses, I don't want to, you know, not answer your question, but the price does express the sentiment. And so the price tells us everything with Bitcoin. Um, it's not, Bitcoin is not, um, it can't answer your questions. Now we have on-chain data and that is proving to potentially be valuable in forecasting moves in the Bitcoin price. I, I won't say yes or no on that. I think the jury is still out, it's early, but I've seen plenty of proof that on-chain data, what is happening with Bitcoin, addresses, balances, old balances, new balances, large balances, small balances, all the internals of on-chain data are potentially the the data that we need. So there's no survey. The survey is you look at the blockchain and that's what Glassnode is doing, all these analysts and- Yeah, sure, um, sure. There's there, there's always data you can just, that, that gets logged, right? That exists there and there's there's survey data you can you can add, but at the same time, like the on-chain data is getting more complex and less complete as well, because you've got like a lot of stuff going on on exchanges that you don't always see on Lightning, there's activity going on, so. Uh, that's a tough one. Anyway, no, I'm yeah, always it, just fascinated. Yeah. <laughs> no, I was going like to say really that fascinated. I'm, uh, Go ahead. yeah, Go ahead. I'm, I'm really sorry, but I was just going to say <laughs> that I, in terms of on-chain data, I'm comfortably only using one metric and then one derivative of that metric. And that metric is realized price because I can understand what it represents and I can explain it to somebody that maybe doesn't even know anything about Bitcoin. I can explain a realized price to them within 10 to 15 minutes of explaining to them what Bitcoin is. And then the derivative of that is the ratio of market value to realized value. So that MVRV ratio, uh, that's, that's it. That's what I'm formally using in my framework when I'm teaching, when I'm you know meeting with clients. Outside of that, I haven't been able to prove anything to a point where I feel comfortable, you know, listen, as a, adjunct professor, whether or not um, my label is as an academic or not, listen, I'm in, I'm in a university. So I have to move slow in terms of what I add to my framework and what I teach. That's why I don't include crypto, cryptocurrency. It's not part of my framework. It's not, it hasn't earned its place in an academic setting. Bitcoin has, in my opinion, that's what I've communicated to USC Marshall and they awarded me the course based off of that premise. And so, you know, to go to the on-chain stuff, yeah, I've added one, but there's a million others that I haven't because I want to move really slow and I don't want to add something that isn't real and, and you know, and, you know, is, is like obscured away with things like, real, um, you know, lightning exchanges and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Not that realized value is perfect, but that's, that's the way that you know I'm approaching it. Nick, I want to bring up uh, everybody's favorite shitcoin this week. Um, you had a uh, you had a tweet recently saying that uh, 
Terra buying a billion dollars with Bitcoin, objectively no different than you know Tesla or MicroStrategy. I'm paraphrasing here. Uh, yeah. I'm, I'm wondering if your thoughts on that stance have uh, changed at all given recent events. Yeah. Uh, so if you if you if you read what I'm saying in my argument here, it's that anybody that buys Bitcoin to prove something as in terms of what is their asset it's a it's a balance sheet comment this is a comment on balance sheets so adding bitcoin to the asset side of your balance sheet with the purpose of bringing legitimacy to your balance sheet the liabilities that you've issued or uh, the valuation of your equity portion right the equity is assets minus not minus liabilities it's the net assets of the firm so adding bitcoin on the asset side is it proves that bitcoin is a first layer money that that was my the the purpose of the comment now the 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 shit coin that collapses that owned bitcoin the fascinating thing was that the balance that they had in Bitcoin, which was visible to us, we knew the address, it got liquidated, brought down to zero as they sold it. Now, did Bitcoin work as it was meant to work in that scenario? I would say yes. They owned it. They liquidated. Who knows what they did with the money? Maybe they stole it all. That's fine. You know, uh, it's not my Bitcoin that they stole. Um, but when my point is that a, if Tesla collapsed today, that would be also the same thing. Or if MicroStrategy collapsed, listen, if MicroStrategy collapsed because they over leveraged their Bitcoin position and got margin called, which Michael Saylor has communicated to his shareholders um, wouldn't even happen until like a $3,000 level, at which point they could put up USD collateral for it. That's my understanding. I'm not trying to, you know, let them get away with anything here. I'm just saying if MicroStrategy went bankrupt, does that, does that make bit, does that change anything about Bitcoin or what Bitcoin's use was? Now, uh, I think some of the frustration with the tweet was even saying the name Terra or Luna or whatever it was that I said, um, oh, because it brings attention to it brings attention to something that was a total scam and, and absolute collapse. But nowhere in that is my thesis. Oh, yeah, these are now assets that you should buy because they happen to own some Bitcoin. I've never said buy MicroStrategy or Tesla or Luna, owning Bit a company or an altcoin or a stablecoin owning Bitcoin on their balance sheet is their effort to prove something to the market. Yeah, I guess it's I guess. independent of my support of that asset as something, you know, to buy or not. In in more simpler terms, what we say on Twitter all the time is Bitcoin's for enemies, right? So like, yeah, there might be altcoins that are buying up Bitcoin. Uh, they might be scams. But that doesn't change the fundamentals of Bitcoin. And should we root on, like, even if it was a company, say Bernie Madoff created some new company out of nowhere, right? That was some Ponzi scheme. 
we shouldn't root for them to buy Bitcoin purely because it's going to pump Bitcoin's price because in the long run, they're going to get liquidated anyway. So yeah. it's going to all come back crashing anyway, you know, down to lower than when they bought it at. Yeah. And I love the idea of any entity owning Bitcoin as an asset full stop because it, it confirms the layer one money. Uh, the first layer money, it confirms the thesis of layered money, that Bitcoin is this first layer money that people, companies, corporations, um, and countries want to own. Yeah. And, uh, you know, if there are scammers that want to buy it, that, you know, that's fine. They're trying to prove something to the people that they're trying to scam. And um, I, I even said that, you know, Tesla, uh, you know, makes cars that don't work below a certain temperature. But, but that has nothing to do with, um, you know, whether uh, Tesla should own Bitcoin or if that's a good decision or whether I support them owning Bitcoin. I support everyone buying Bitcoin for whatever purpose because it's a it's a layer one money. It's a neutral money that people can use for whatever purpose so so you're I'm, saying I, even I, though tesla's a scam having bitcoin <laughs> in the balance sheet legitimizes it as a first layer asset that's exactly what i'm saying and um i you know personally i know that a lot of people have lost money but from my thesis it i i do um i do like when these things collapse because it is important for the thesis and some because listen uh you know getting a usc course that has bitcoin as the first word in the title do you think that i achieved that with without any steadfastness or bitcoin maximalism or um you know holding my ground you have to fight for these things we have to fight for the thesis that Bitcoin is the world-changing technology, well, and thesis. I started to put, you can find it's it. mine, yeah. and and <laughs> and I put I started to put crypto in quotes every time I use it to even further separate it from the reality. Uh, I you know just I started to put it in quotes because they are not the same thing, and when. Luna collapses and Mike Novogratz has a tattoo of Luna oh, so is is too good. It, and, <laughs> he and, does? Yes. I didn't yes. know that. Oh my oh, god. So <laughs> yes. He he we, I don't know if there's Correct. a picture of it, but he has said it on he said it on stage in Miami that he has one. And that is too good. There's a picture. And we there is a picture? Yeah, yeah. It's on his butt. Yeah. <laughs> and 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 really, you know, as someone who wants to bring narrative slow and steady, I want to write books about Bitcoin for years to come, guys. Do we want Luna to, you know, That's be around and look at this? Look at that. This is huge. <laughs> yeah, it's a really big to. tattoo. And Thanks. it's colored. <laughs> Is that the Luna logo? <laughs> is that, that, is that, that a logo to Wolf? It doesn't matter. It, it doesn't know. matter because he thanks Quan in the tweet. So it doesn't matter whether it's the logo or not. He really, 
He really did that, and it really went to zero. And they did buy a billion worth of Bitcoin and then sell it. And, um, you know, I don't, yeah, I don't uh, regret saying the word Luna or Terra in my, in a tweet because it brought attention to something that, yeah, it's a scam. And, and listen, everyone, everyone that red layered money understands that bank runs are a natural occurrence when your liabilities are issued with a counterparty risk and your assets don't have you know any risk there's a risk of theft loss fraud failure and it's always there so if you want to have your money safe don't own uh don't own something that's issued as a counterparty instrument and altcoins honestly are that they are issued and the fact that um they linked this stable coin and then had the underlying as collateral and it got liquidated. Listen, I didn't know. I didn't know how they structured it. I just knew that they bought a billion worth of Bitcoin and that that proves Bitcoin is a uh, uh, first layer money. Outside of that, I didn't uh, do any research into whether these guys are scammers or not. It doesn't matter. Um, it doesn't matter whether Elon is a scammer or not either. So, so going back to Bitcoin being a layer one money, um, and and then also you were talking about the PMI contracting in Q1. I think this is something that I've been thinking about a ton lately, and a lot of Bitcoiners have. Is you ha if you see the Fed has done two rate hikes so far in 2022, and they say that they have I think seven more rate hikes on the table. But if we went through a contraction in Q1, and we were in the, the possibility of being inside a recession right now, if you know, we have to wait till Q2 numbers come out. But if Q2 numbers come out and we're and we contract again, then that puts us in the middle of a recession. Uh, do you think that the Fed will uh, continue to do rate hikes into a recession? So I believe the Fed has room left to hike. They have the uh, target rate at about 75 basis points right now. And, um, or they've hiked 75 basis points. So rates are at about 85 to 90 basis points in the front end of the curve. And the two year yield is, um, you know, way north of two and a half percent. So the Fed has basically been given permission from the market to raise rates another 150 basis points. The, the Fed will raise rates as long as twos are trading above Fed funds. So the yields will tell them when to stop, like the market tells them when it's over. Right now, the market has given Fed permission. So the Fed will hike either 50 or 75 basis points on June 15th in about five weeks. Uh, that much is a is a lock. So they'll get then rates to How between the 100 and... How does the market signal? What's the, what's the mechanism to signal permission for the 1.5% rate hikes? Yeah. So there's various points in the yield curve uh, across different assets, actually, or different types of money markets that give us this permission, uh, you know, what, what they have permission to do. So I say two-year yields as in terms of U.S. Uh, Treasury two-year yields. 
being a good indicator of where the market thinks the policy rate is going to be in two years. So with twos at about two and three quarter percent, the market thinks that the Fed can get to two and three quarter percent over the next couple of years in terms of hikes. Is when the, the two year yield. Wrong? OK, the market's actually never wrong when when we get inside this kind of like 30 to 90 day, um, 30 to 90 day window. But outside of that, the market moves really fast. So the market is never wrong because within 90 days, it's always right. Is basically the question. But just because twos trade at 275 today doesn't mean the policy rate gets to 275. And the two year yield will trade in the direction in which the market believes the policy rate is going. So right now, I do believe treasury yields are topping. If you guys have read my stuff, you know that I've been talking about the fact that there is no treasury bond bubble bursting. Rates are going to turn around and go lower as we head into contractionary economy and slowing inflation and all that kind of stuff. There is no, um, you know, QE coming because yields are falling or falling upwards and uh, the U.S. government can't fund itself. I believe that that thesis is um, wrong. So when two-year yields come down to, let's say, 250 and then to 2%, all of a sudden the Fed is looking at two-year yields at 2% thinking, wait a second, I don't have room to raise rates 200 basis points. I only have room to raise rates 125 basis points. So I've just gone from nine hikes to five hikes or you know whatever, eight, eight, you know, eight, nine hikes to, to five hikes. So the market tells them what to do. Now, to get a little bit deeper into that, Greg, to, with your question is that when then we start to look at the Euro dollar market. So this is where LIBOR rates trade and the offshore dollar market looks. We look at the Euro dollar market curve because the Euro dollar contracts have expiry every month. And so we are able to actually see where do money market rates trade to each Fed meeting. And then to get even more refined, we have the OIS market, which stands for the overnight index swap market. And that is looking to the Fed funds rate. So it's a derivatives market that trades based off of the Fed's policy rate itself. And the OIS swap market actually has um, expiry dates or maturity dates on the Fed meeting dates themselves. So when we look at the OIS market, we can actually see to the exact basis point where the market believes the Fed policy rate will be. And that's the number, Greg, that is never, ever, ever wrong when it gets down into the short time horizon. So when we look at the June 15th OIS swap rate today, it is, I think, somewhere in the 65 basis point range, meaning the market expects between 50 and 75 basis points of hikes. That will not go from 60 to 20 before June 15th, right? Absent, you know, nuclear war, whatever. Uh, the, that rate, the volatility of those rates, once they get inside even the meeting date, like we passed the the Fed hike in May, so we're inside the intermeeting period. It's not gonna it's not gonna change outside of that fifty to seventy five basis point window. Then when we look to the 
July and the September meeting. I think we skip August in terms of our meetings. We have a July meeting and then we go to September meeting. The July meeting, I'm going to look at those OIS rates and I'm going to pretty much say, yeah, the Fed, you're going to get you're going to get that. Whatever you say, the market says you're going to get, you're going to get that. So that actually puts us about 1% higher on Fed funds by July. So we're going to just under 2%, in my opinion, on Fed funds by the end of July. And the OIS market has that rate observable to everybody with a Bloomberg terminal as of today. So that is what I know to be to it, that is going to happen. Once we get outside of July, there are too many things. And to get back to Sean's question, that's when we'll get a GDP print for 2Q, right, in August sometime. And it'll be after the July meeting. And it could tell us that we were in recession. And then we get to the September meeting and the Fed has to pause. And if you're paying attention to PMI, you're going to know ahead of time. That's correct. And, and, and right now, PMIs and ISMs are still north of 50 in the United States. We are not in a recessionary uh, period in the economy based off of this very accurate survey data. But ISMs, which go into contraction for the economy around 47, um, you know, it, if we go below 47, then you'll know. Well, um, yeah. One of the things I've been looking at that's been uh, really sitting in my mind is like the next uh, catalyst for uh, for economic fuckery worldwide, let's call it, um, is that when you're looking at Russia and Ukraine, you're looking at two of the top five uh, wheat exporters in the world that are now at war and not exporting their food. Uh, on top of that, I think Russia is the number one uh, Russia and Belarus are the, are the number one and two exporters of potash and like uh, other fertilizers. So, and then uh, on top of that, China is not exporting their uh, their phosphates for uh, for fertilizer. So I think there's a big food shortage on the horizon. I don't think that's priced in anywhere yet. Um, has there ever been a point where? I know I've heard the phrase something along the lines of like, you're always three meals from a, uh, a revolution, right? <laughs> but uh, has there only been any examples in the, uh, in the recent past where um, big changes in the food supply and pricing have led to economic policy changes at like the, the Fed level? Yeah, uh, so we know that we had the Arab Spring off of the back of uh, food shortages and price spikes in terms of wheat. Um, but the, the Fed actually looks past a lot of the food and energy stuff in this, um, in, in this economy in the United States. And as a, a young student, I was appalled by that. Um, I'm like, what do you, what do you mean in food doesn't count? That's all I spend my money on. And, um, but then, you know, it, when you look at the numbers, it is, it, they are able to look past it in terms of the, you know, how it affects the overall economy. That doesn't mean it doesn't affect people. Um, the fed has actually had a very anti people policy because of 1913 right 
Well, yeah. Well, yes. <laughs> and, you know, the, but the nature of the credit money system and the nature of fractional reserve and the nature of banking charters make it so that the fiat dollar system favors those closest to the money spigot. This is the Cantillion effect. I like them closest to the money spigot metaphor because um, it is a spigot and the closer you are, the more you are able to capture that. And when it comes to the populace in the United States, they are on the outside looking in. So um, it's not to say that food inflation isn't material or it doesn't matter, but to the Fed, it absolutely doesn't matter. They just don't care. The numbers don't, the percentage isn't high enough for them to care. They just care about other things like the stock market because the stock market matters more on the, on an actual numbers basis. If they are able to pump the market, it increases confidence and, and gooses the economy, greases the, the wheels of the economy. And if stocks are down, this is called the wealth effect. If stocks are down and real estate prices are down, people stop spending. And that actually does slow consumer spending and it does slow the economy at the aggregate level. So, um, you know, they know what they're doing. They're focusing on stocks and they'll let stocks sell off until they say, you know, no more. It's starting to slow the economy. And then, you know, they'll start easing monetary policy again. But I don't see any scenario in which the food, the global food market affects what the Fed does. How do they look at Bitcoin and how do they respond to it according to they you? Don't, they don't care. It just doesn't, it doesn't hit the radar. It's, Bitcoin, is down to, Bitcoin is down to half a trillion dollars. That's like yeah, but, what I would trade in US treasuries in a, a year just sitting on the seat at a small shop. Okay, so compared just, to 2016, yeah. it's still nothing to them. That's your... It's nothing. Uh, your, it's nothing. It's nothing to the Fed. At what point does it become something to them? 10 trillion. 10 trillion, yeah. About 10 trillion. Gold. About 10 trillion. About 10 trillion and also, but geopolitically speaking, bigger nations saying, okay, parallel currency is legal legal tender in parallel to our home currency. Not an El Salvador where it's a dollar and Bitcoin, but like a South Korea where it's like Korean won and Bitcoin are both legal tender and then it gets, you know, used or Brazil, where real and Bitcoin are legal tender, then then it starts to creep into international settlement, competing with SWIFT. We just we're just not there. It could happen. It could happen next year, um, you know, in terms of the geopolitical adoption, snowballing and, and bringing them attention. But um, it it has a long way to go really on the geopolitical front. What do you and know then you on Nick? I know. I, yeah, I don't. It's interesting. <laughs> what do you mean next year? A lot. You what can country? bring in a hey. money, and I, and I name that you know something that we don't know. No, no, I, no absolutely not. I what I do know. I'll tell you what I do know about Brazil. Tell me what you do. Is know. that on the ground, um, Brazilians are using Bitcoin in the similar way to how Africans are using Bitcoin to. Uh, you know, long-term hedge their government. If that, that you know, that doesn't mean that Nigeria or Brazil is going to be the next one to to do it on the legal yeah. side, but the people 
They're already doing it. The people are using it. And the, and the, the ethos, up. yeah, the ethos of Bitcoin as a neutral currency and, uh, you know, uh, escaping your own government, it has a unique feel in the United States because it's people that are like, um, I think, politically in uh, a minority versus abroad where it's like consensus to protect against your government stealing from you, like in Argentina, you know, and places like that. You know, I have an Argentinian friend that, um, you know, so you're it, not racist. everyone is family and friends. They all use Bitcoin. They all know Bitcoin. They all and and since 2013 because it's second nature to them. So I I want to see more of that uh, across the world. Nick, we're getting close to the end of the show, and you've been super generous with your time and our bullshit. Thank you. And I want to make sure that RD gets a chance to ask the question that we saved for last. Uh, because it's important. So I'm going to cede the floor to him so he can uh, he can go ahead and ask you. Thanks for coming on, Nick. Uh, right, important question. If the meme factory did exist, and we all know it doesn't, which one of us would you like? Which one of us would you retweet? Which one of us would you mute? <laughs> which one of you guys would I... Uh, mute, like, and retweet? Is that the question? I know it's a it right now. Seems like you thought <laughs> it. Okay. Um, the like, uh, okay, the like goes to Greg because he asked the follow-up on ISM. Because, it, um, you know, these are, I, sometimes I forget um, what I can say and what I have to define and um, something like ISM is part of the absolute fundamental framework of everything that I do, uh, you know, slash PMIs, I teach it to my students and um, I early and often. So that would be, <laughs> that would be my comment there. Um, retweet, um, Retweet would have to be labra because of the because of the the meme. I mean, that's just it's. I'm I'm a sucker for memes. Um, that's why I'm Thank on board you. with you guys. Uh, I'm all about the memes. If my wife uh, would allow me, I would write my second book on memes, but she just won't let me. Um, you guys can help me fight that battle. We'll Maybe divorce. over a longer term time horizon. But Nick's wife let him write a book about memes. Yeah, please. Nick's wife. It's it's the love language of all of us, I think. And layered memes. Um, layered <laughs> 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 um, <laughs> And the mute goes to RD for this question because then you made me uh, put uh, a negative light on somebody. So that's gonna go to you, dude. Sorry. <laughs> he said <laughs> two things this episode, and one of them was layered memes. <laughs> Yeah, he's going to stay on mute. <laughs> All right, so thank you, Nick. Um, we've got one more thing to go over before I'm going to ask you a uh, question about some other stuff, but uh, Sean has something he needs to go over with you as well. Yes, Nick, we got the having party with the mean factory coming up 2024. Block height 840,000. You're invited. Uh, we don't have a location yet because it's still like two years out in advance. But uh, 
but you're invited, your family's invited, your friends are invited, come out, it's gonna be fun. We, uh, we invite everyone that comes on the show. And uh, to us, it's like the Olympics of Bitcoin. So every four years, there's a happen. So we wanna, we wanna have a good time and enjoy it. Okay. I love that, thank you for the invite. I appreciate it. And Labra, I know you've been keeping track the whole show. Do you know what the, uh, the final score is tonight? Uh, yep, I got it. So Nick uh, got uh, two candies. Uh, Sean got a pillow, and Greg, you got again a potato. No, right. po no points for uh, Pedro, Marcus, or RD, huh? Um, okay, I'll mention. Uh, so Marcus <laughs> got a t-shirt, uh, Pedro uh, got a retweet, yeah. and RD uh, got a hat. Perfect, perfect. All right, good scores, everybody. Now, before we leave for the evening, uh, Nick, I want to give you a chance to, number one, Tell anybody what you're working on, where they can find you, other than the links I put in the show notes, which is your Twitter handle and your website. Wait, Greg, are we not doing a happy birthday for somebody's daughter? Um, uh, Nick, you're gonna sing happy birthday with us. All right. All right. This is for Ava. <clears throat> <coughs> la la la. Parties <clears throat> You can lead the way, Pedro. Happy birthday, birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, Happy birthday to you. Sorry, almost did it peep? We almost didn't get that done. That was brilliant. That was brilliant. All right, Nick, where can people find you? What are you working on? What are you excited about? Absolutely. Everyone can find all my links at layeredmoney.com. So links to my Twitter, my Substack publication called The Bitcoin Layer, and uh, my book, Layered Money. So what I'm working on right now is The Bitcoin Layer. I'm writing once or twice a week about global macro and Bitcoin, um, growing the readership there and, uh, you know, just really enjoying engaging with the readers and uh, talking about rate hikes and the Fed and Bitcoin and correlation and, and all of that good stuff. So I hope people will join me over at the Bitcoin layer .substack.com. All right. That's in the show notes. And Nick, do you have any questions for any of the meme factory members while you've got us here hostage? No, you guys have been great. I really appreciate you having me on and uh, hope to do it again. Thanks for your time, Nick. Yeah. Thank you, Nick. I learned Thanks, a lot. Nick. Thank you. Play us out. Hang on. That happy birthday is going to sound amazing. Thank <laughs> No, Labrador shipped in. Yeah, I'm just doxing myself. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's already... Wow, Nick, that, 